And it turned out that we had to build a really highly cross-disciplinary technical team from mechanical engineers to uh, thermodynamicists to sort of computational fluid dynamicists to machine learning experts, embedded software experts, um, and the list goes on and on to sort of really go from water vapor to liquid water to safe water to stored fresh water with controlled mineral content and so on. So to get all of that into a package that could be shipped anywhere in the world, that could work anywhere in the world. Hi, wherever you're listening to me, I hope you're doing well. Welcome to a new season of Startup Fridays, weekly conversations with accomplished startup entrepreneurs and VC investors. I'm Hari Arakli, and in today's episode, Cody Friesen, founder and CEO of Source Global, talks about his dream of putting to bed one of humanity's biggest and most urgent problems, the lack of access to clean drinking water for billions around the planet. Cody is a scientist, engineer, teacher and entrepreneur whose company is preparing to take its product called Hydropanels, which use solar power to send air through a proprietary hygroscopic material to extract water to the next level of scale. In this conversation, Cody also reflects on his approach to knowledge transfer as an activity that should go beyond teaching or academic research into the realms of solving practical problems at scale. With several installations of sources hydro panels in India and having made multiple trips here, Cody also talks about the vibrancy he sees in India's startup ecosystem and hopes that we'll see many unreasonable entrepreneurs willing to challenge and break the status quo to solve some of our biggest problems. So very nice to finally get to see you. Thank you so much for making time for this. Absolutely. I really appreciate uh, you having us on. All right. I mean, uh, for the audience in India in particular and for the general listener who may not be familiar with your work, maybe you could just start by just telling us a little bit about yourself. Um, Give us a snapshot of, you know, the journey from MIT engineer and PhD to being a teacher and entrepreneur. Sure. Uh, so maybe I'll start. You know, my my name is Cody Friesen. I'm the founder and and CEO of of Source Global. Uh, but that's the you know that's the current state. Um, sure. Uh, I did my PhD in material science at MIT. Um, both working on density functional theory calculations, so quantum mechanical calculations related to catalysis, and uh, experimental work related to mechanics of thin films. Um, so pretty a pretty broad um, mm. range of, of topics, but, you know, sort of generally in the space of renewable energy. Uh, when I finished my PhD, uh, the president, the new president of Arizona State University uh, had just started and was talking about reimagining the academic model. And so uh, they recruited me to, to come to be a junior faculty at ASU which I accepted in 2004. Um, And the idea that at that time was, you know, of course, hydrogen economy was a big thing back in the early 2000s. You know, what is is new is old again, or what is old is new again uh, in hydrogen. And so when I I began at ASU, built a a research group, got an NSF career award, got the Department of Energy grants, and started to build a group uh, that was really focused on, you know, kind of the renewable energy space. Um, I'm a physical electrochemist and a surface scientist uh, by training. And so uh, doing a lot of work in the physical electrochemistry space, um, you know, oxygen reduction, redox reactions, et cetera. Um, and that got me thinking about um, energy storage and sort of pulling up the periodic table in the, in the mid 2000s um, and asking the question, you know, what is the lowest cost way to store an electron? Mm. And, you know, sort of you hunt and peck around the, the periodic table. And of course, uh, a transition metal uh, forming, going from a metal to a metal oxide versus oxygen is very, very low cost. And so, uh, of course, zinc air batteries have been around since about 1917 or so they were initially invented. Um, but nobody had ever made them rechargeable. They'd always been a primary battery. 
Mm. Uh, you can find air hearing aid batteries and that sort of thing. Um, and so we went after the idea of making zinc air batteries rechargeable, which we uh, developed several technologies that enabled high cycle life rechargeability in zinc air. Uh, and that allowed us to spin out a company called Fluidic Energy in 2007. And we built that company, took it global, ended up doing a lot of critical load sites uh, in Indonesia and, and other places. Ended up, I think, in about nine countries with that with that business. Um, and you know, far lower cost than lithium ion at that time, about 25 times cheaper than lithium ion. Um, of course, lithium ion has come down dramatically in the cost curve, so it would still be a factor of a couple cheaper than lithium ion. Um, but really, you know, solving uh, energy storage type problems was was a key interest of mine early on. Eventually, that company was sold and, and I moved on. Um, and then in the early 2010s, uh, I was serving as the co-chair of the Energy Subcommittee on the U.S. Manufacturing Council, the Department of Commerce in the United States. So we were thinking about um, how about trade policy and uh, things related to renewable energy. And so, you know, I was really thinking about um, where is renewable energy going to go from a policy perspective? Where is it going to go from a technology perspective? And, you know, you think about 2010 or so, solar, solar PV, photovoltaics, were about a factor of 12 to 15 times more expensive than they are now. But yet we had 30 years of data that was showing that by 2015 or 2016, solar was going to be cheaper than coal. Mm. And so from an innovator's perspective, from an academic's perspective, I was thinking about, well, where does renewable energy go? What's the future of renewable energy? Not what is the next five years, what is the next 10 years, but what's the next 20, 30, 40 years? And the insight if there was an insight, if there was a light bulb moment, if you want, um, was, well, actually, renewables for electricity is almost done. We know that mm -hmm. solar is going to be cheaper than coal. We know that lithium ion is also on a really rapid compounding learning curve. And so energy storage is going to get cheap. Uh, those solar electrons are going to get really cheap. And so the question became, could we apply the principles of renewables to a different resource? And then it was recognizing that, well, actually, probably humanity's greatest problem is drinking water. And that there are much greater dislocations, both health dislocations and monetary dislocations associated with water than there ever were in electricity. And so if we could apply the principles of renewables to water, if we could make water a distributed resource and fully democratize it anywhere in the world, that, that would be a really important innovation. So that's what we got after in the early 2000s or 2010s. And eventually that turned into Source Globe. Mm. So that's a, that's a very brief history uh, of me. Yeah, nice. I mean, fascinating story of how you got to thinking about water and making it renewable. By the way, uh, here in Bangalore as well, I mean, and you may be familiar with their work. There's a small startup called Uravu Labs, which is trying to do something similar to what you've been working on for the last eight years. I mean, my, my rudimentary understanding is you try to push air through a hygroscopic material and, and, you know, see how much water you can get out of that. And, and, and they're trying to do something very similar to what you're doing by, by making the, the source of the energy required, you know, renewable. Of course, they're very much early stage and not, I guess, in your case, you already have a commercial product, several countries and so on. Maybe you can give us a sense of, uh, what you started with, and uh, today, where, where you are at. Yeah, so first I'll say, you know, anybody working on solving drinking water issues is a hero in my book, right? I mean, I think uh, the scale of the drinking water problem is so massive that um, any renewable source of water, any democratizable source of water is uh, a big addition, right? We think about I mean, in India, in India's population represents about 20% of all of the uh, unsafe water in the world is located in India, right? And so the population is, is exposed to a, a great deal of water stress. I think there's something like 800,000 villages without improved water source in India. And so it's a challenge that needs to be solved. Um, and that's going to come from uh, old technologies that, you know, are... Uh, improved upon and and made into better infrastructure. But it's also going to come from new technologies that help to make water a distributed resource. 
Um, and so, you know, that that startup company you mentioned, uh, and I'm confident in India, there's probably dozens of startup companies that are thinking about this problem, right? Um, and around the world, there may be hundreds of companies. So hopefully, you know, from that hundreds of companies distills, you know, a half a dozen great ideas or something, right? So that's, that's obviously um, uh, something I, I get exposed to a lot is um, all of the great innovators sort of talking about what, um, what they're thinking about in water. Um, and it's quite impressive what, what people are, are working on today. So um, kudos to those, that, that company that you mentioned. And can you say the name of the company again? It's uh, Uravu Labs, U-R-A-V-U. Uh, and I think they started out the Indian Institute of Science here in Bangalore. Um, yeah. So yeah, tell us about your, your product, the, the, the first sort of uh, marketery version that you brought out, what could people do with it and, and what you're doing with it today? The, the, the simplest version of what we do, right, is we take water vapor in the air and we make liquid water, right? And then we take that liquid water, we make it safe to drink, and then we store it in a way that's very safe. So we're able to take water vapor that's present anywhere on the planet and make liquid water almost anywhere on the planet and make sure that there's a democratized, fully distributed source of safe water wherever humans are. That's what we do in the simplest framing. And so one could sort of just think about, you know, for your listeners, okay, especially for those, those listeners that don't have a technical background, that may sound kind of like uh, hocus pocus for people with a, a technical background would say, okay, well, that's very simple. So to make it really, really simple, if you put a, let's say a, a liter of water in a, in a pan and you put that on the stove and you turn on this, the stove and you put some amount of energy into that water, it turns obviously into steam and, and goes into the, into the room. So that is obviously taking liquid water and making vapor. This, if you had a perfectly efficient process, it would take the same amount of energy to take that liter of, uh, well, that kilogram of water vapor and turn it into a liter of liquid water, right? Um, and so the question becomes, how do you do that extremely efficiently under all Earth-relevant conditions, whether it's very humid outside or very dry outside, whether it's very sunny outside, whether it's very cloudy? whether it's cold, whether it's hot. Um, now, you could easily imagine making, you know, sort of an artificial dew point machine, right? Sort of like a air conditioner type thing, right? Where you have a vapor compression cycle that makes a cold surface and then you condense water on that. That would only be efficient though, at very high humidity and under high temperature conditions. Mm -hmm. So the question becomes, how would you actually run that process efficiently under all conditions? And the approach that we took is a material science approach. So um, the simplest example that I like to give is when you leave the lid off of a sugar bowl in your home, you note that the, the sugar gets a little bit clumpy and it's getting clumpy because the sugar is absorbing water vapor from the air. So the sugar is hygroscopic and it's in fact so hygroscopic that it's deliquescent, meaning that it actually dissolves into the water that it takes up. So now imagine a nanostructured material that does that same process just thousands of times faster and passively concentrates the water vapor by about 10,000 times by volume from the air. So we have that set of materials that we've developed over time. We then use sunlight to take that water vapor that's been stored in those materials and respire it back into the inside the hydro panel, creating a condensable vapor with the vapor being having a dew point above the ambient condition. So now you have sort of a passive process by which you get condensation. Now to make that process efficient, it turns out that there's actually multiple different types of materials, multiple layers. There's eight dimensions of control points that we use with, with a machine learning alg algorithm that controls those different, uh, those different control points, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But at the very basic root, the process that we're doing is just simply condensation of that water vapor from the air. The ability to do that in a renewable way is, is because of the fact that in the lower part of the atmosphere, part of the atmosphere we live in, the troposphere, there are 10 to the 16 kilograms. So one and then 16 zeros, it's a big number, kilograms of water vapor in the air. It's about six times all of the Earth's rivers combined at any given time. And that water is replaced in the atmosphere 
every week by the action of the sun over the oceans, right? So we have this atmospheric ocean of water vapor that's all around us. And so there's this sort of untapped resource uh, from which we can make perfect drinking water. Mm. And I'm thinking your your unit has some kind of a pump that needs to push the air through this hygroscopic material and, and the energy needed by that pump is what comes from the solar panels. Is that how it works? Yeah, there's a, there's a set of fans and some other actuators and things inside the, the panel. And so if you look at the front of a source hydro panel, you'll note that the sort of center section, there's a PV panel, uh, and that's providing about 100 watts of electrical power to run all the systems. <clears throat> and then you'll note the rest of the surface area is sort of a dark color. That's actually sunlight impinging directly on the active materials to drive this process. So um, the the process itself is not going through the solar PV, but the solar PV is providing the energy for fans and for actuators and the control electronics and so on. Mm. When when did you ship your first unit um, and give us a sense of all that you've already achieved uh, so far? I mean, whether it's in terms of scale or markets where you've installed your, uh, I don't know, what, what do you call it? It's a source panel? Is that what you call it? And yeah, just give us a sense of uh, what all you've done so far. Yeah, we refer to these this technology as a source hydro panel. And so the idea of uh, very similar to what a, a you know solar PV module does, but instead of taking in sunlight and making electricity, it takes in sunlight and air and makes water. Uh, the first MVP, minimum viability product, uh, that we shipped uh, was in middle of 2015. And we closed the Series A. Uh, financing in May of 2015. And in July of 2015, we shipped the first 50 units to Jordan, Ecuador, and here in Arizona. So we were instantly on three continents. And for those entrepreneurs that are listening or technology entrepreneurs, um, one of the great you know sort of lessons uh, I learned from my earlier entrepreneurial experiences is the earlier you can make contact with the field in the ever broad in, in the broadest possible sense, uh, the more learnings you gain, right? So you can learn in dog years. So even those very first units that went out had an off-the-shelf modem that was sending SMS texts to a Gmail account. That was our data. That was our data infrastructure. Uh, you know, very very simple, very rudimentary data infrastructure providing us real-time data, um, even in those very earliest units. Because what we knew we needed when we were sort of thinking about this different paradigm in drinking water is we needed to be in a wide range of environments out the gates in order for us to really understand uh, where the technology needed to go. So we installed at eight separate sites across the country of Jordan, We assigned, and then we installed across 10 separate uh, sites in the area of Guayaquil, Ecuador. So that's uh, equatorial, uh, you know, a very humid type environment. And of course, Jordan's very dry, and then Arizona's very dry and hot. So you know, three very different environments out of the gates. And then we built from there. Um, you know, today we're in over 50 countries um, with um, installations at homes and the Navajo Nation here in Arizona in the Four Corners region. Um, to give people a sense of the Navajo Nation, it's the same land area as um, the state of West Virginia. It's about 27,000 square miles, um, massive. And then... <clears throat> Uh, there's about 150,000 Navajo Native Americans living there, and 54,000 Navajo have no water. So we're supporting those folks. Um, we're in island nations uh, in the South Pacific. We're in Australia. We're in India. We're all across Africa. We're in a wide range of places and a wide range of applications from homes to communities, to hotels to schools. You name it. Anywhere where people drink water, where there's water stress, uh, we find application. Mm. Give us a sense of, uh, I mean, in, in sort of simple layman's terms, what's typically the capacity of one of your hydro panel units? Uh, how long does it last once you install? Uh, what are sort of the costs in installing one and, and maintaining it and so on? Yeah, so... <clears throat> A source hydro panel does about five liters of water per day on a spec day. So when we have sunlight and, and so on. 
Uh, and so to kind of compare that, right, you think about a single solar PV module does about 300 watts of uh, peak uh, electric power, which isn't a huge amount of power, but you put a number of those PV panels together and you can power whole cities. In a very similar way, source, we put in the number of modules that is needed for a school or for a home or whatever it might be, uh, specifically focused on the drinking water. Um, that hydro panel is designed to last minimum of 15 years. And with proper maintenance, it can go significantly longer. Um, there's nothing that really wears out inside other than the electromechanical components. So you can replace those components over the course of decades as, as they wear out. <clears throat> so um, a typical hydro panel installation is about $2,000. So um, if you uh, were to buy, if you were in the U.S. and you were to buy one online, uh, that's what that's approximately what you would spend. Um, the obviously, as we go to large scale installations, they can get significantly lower costs than that. Um, and uh, what that means from an amortized cost perspective is that the cost of a liter of water is about four to seven cents a liter. Um, and if you think about sort of average uh, bottled water co costs in India, I think they're probably around 25 to 35 cents a liter for bottled water. And if it's in the uh, large jugs, you get down to maybe about five to eight cents a liter. Is that about approximately right in India? Uh, yeah, I, I, I would think so. I mean, yeah, I'm thinking you're probably able to scale up, probably not scale down beyond sort of the smallest unit, but... Do you, do you get to scale up your tech uh, if you're, for example, uh, doing an industrial installation? So large number of hydro panels, which can sort of you know collect in a big container and things like that. Yeah. So when we do large arrays, um, so you can think about you know about a thousand hydro panels fit on a single acre. An acre can do about a million to a million and a half liters per year. So an, an acre is a nice is a good well, right? Um, so you, you think about the ability to sort of plunk down a an artesian well anywhere, right? You need about an acre to do that with source. When we have something of that scale, then we apply what we call a SAS, which is a source access station. So all the water flows to a what looks like a shipping container, and it has in it the water storage and uh, so everything to keep the water fresh. And so that would be a single offtake point, whether that's for a village or for a you know a office building or whatever it might be tell us a bit more about uh, the business model i mean at $2000 i would think that in india it would be beyond the reach of most people especially if they have to make an upfront payment so w what are the kind of uh, business models you've you've been uh, developing yeah so we we have two major business models. One, which is, of course, we sell hydro panels to governments and to communities and to businesses. Um, and we also um, do water as a service. So um, in the form of what we refer to as water purchase agreements. So Hari, you could say, I want 10 years of water and I need, you know, 100 liters a day or I need 1,000 liters a day. And we would then sell you under contract uh, that water over time. And so very much solar, like solar is sold in the form of a power purchase agreement, PPAs, we do WPAs. Um, and that really enables businesses that are used to just buying water on an ongoing basis or, or communities that are used to buying water on an ongoing basis, or even homeowners who are used to buying water as it's needed um, to, to afford uh, or to have sort of the same uh, model of the the water that they have now only much higher quality and do that in a way that's uh usually a switch and save usually a lower cost than what the, the current solution that they have is and that's the reason why they become a, a purchaser um and that model we've found you know effectively uh you know infinite offtake for so there's there's a, just a massive amount of interest in what in what we do mm. Since you basically use solar power, um, I mean, apart apart from the energy consumed in sourcing all the components and manufacturing your units and so on, uh, sort of at the net level, what might be the carbon footprint of each of your hydro panel units? Yeah, um, so we had to do a set of carbon 
uh, offset calculations. So it turns out that versus bottled water, we repay the carbon in like six months, very fast. In terms of trucked water, it pays back within less than a year. Right? Mm-hmm. So when you think about the um, carbon footprint of getting people good drinking water when they have poor infrastructure, uh, it's it, it the payback is very, very fast. Now, mm-hmm. in places where the infrastructure is very good, where it's working perfectly, right? We're not we're not uh, a competitor of perfect infrastructure. We're a competitor of all the incumbencies for when the infrastructure is poor. Um, and in that case, uh, not only is it a, a switch and save lower cost, but it's also you know a switch and save much lower uh, carbon uh, and emissions offset. When did you uh, come to India? And uh, any, I mean, top of mind, recall any customers that you can talk about um, in you know institutions, businesses in India? Yeah, there's there's a, a bunch of installations in India. Um, one that I really um, uh, really love is uh, we're at a school in Maharashtra mm-hmm. that um, you know, of course, you know, the, the students never had good wa- good quality water at the school, sort of from a hand pump. And, um, you know, we installed a half a dozen panels on the roof of the, of the school and they have a tap in the school room and, and are able to, uh, have much better quality water at school than they have, you know, even, even at home. So, you know, that's, uh, a, an example, a micro example of what we can do effectively anywhere. Um, and as you know, and any of your listeners know, you know, the challenges are across India are massive and growing. Um, and, as source continues to grow globally and continues to gain cost efficiencies and gain uh, performance efficiencies, we'll not only be able to serve those schools, but whole villages and and individuals on a cost basis that is lower than what they have now. Um, And that's not 20 years out. That's over the coming years. It'll continue to get lower costs and be ever more efficient in a way that's very similar to the story of what happened with solar. You know, a dozen years ago, I don't know how much solar PV you saw around India. Probably not a lot versus what you see going in now, right? And that's happening because of those scaling laws of, you know, what's really possible uh, in the renewable space. And the same is true for source. Mm. And and do you get to um, assemble these locally, if not manufacture them completely locally? What what's the how do how do these things work? There is a um, huge opportunity to do local assembly in India. Um, we Today, we, we manufacture multiple sites around the world. Um, we don't manufacture today in India, but there's no reason why we couldn't, right? And so when you think about the secret sauce, right, the material science and a few of the other things, those are relatively low cost and could easily be shipped in. And then you think about the glass, the metal, the plastic, all the things that make up the entire hydro panel, those could easily be sourced locally in India. And so, um, of course, at one of, part of our strategic plan, uh, it's not like it wouldn't be like a big secret, is that as we gain market share in India, as we start to demonstrate what's possible in India, forming local partnerships and manufacturing in India is a, is a core part of the strategy. Mm. Give us a sense of uh, one or two of the toughest uh, challenges you had to solve getting to where you are today, whether it is on the technical front of your product itself or in terms of figuring out the right business model. I mean, that I, I assume that part would have been comparatively easier. I mean, you had a lot of experience on that front. Um, yeah, but on the technical side, maybe uh, try and give us a layman's sense of what kind of challenges you were up against. Yeah, I think one of the so one of our investors is Bill Gates, and you know, one of the things that he always talks about is uh, things always look easy from the outside. And then once you start to work on a problem deeply, you recognize just how complicated and how nuanced the problem can be. And that has for sure been the experience in developing source hydro panels where, you know, the material science was just table stakes. That was, you know, just, we thought that that was the big unlock, but that part just enabled us to get to the next step. And it turned out that we had to build a really highly cross-disciplinary technical team from 
mechanical engineers to uh, thermodynamicists to uh, sort of computational fluid dynamicists to uh, machine learning experts, embedded software experts, um, and the list goes on and on to sort of really go from water vapor to liquid water to safe water to stored fresh water with controlled mineral content and so on. So to get all of that into a package that could be shipped anywhere in the world, that could work anywhere in the world, right? That took a huge amount of engineering know-how. And to do that in a way that allowed us to be in a in a in a architecture that's very low cost, yet is more nuanced. Right. So that was sort of, I would say, um, not a surprise, but certainly there are many, many layers to that, um, to that technical know-how that enable us to get to where we're at. Mm. Um, the second thing I would say, Hari, is not a technical thing, but it's more of a human factors thing. Right. So, you know, I've I've built this company to uh, solve effectively one of humanity's greatest problem, if not humanity's greatest problem, drinking water. Um, and, you know, to use technology to lift people up, to use technology to bring people forward. And um, you think about what the smartphone has done for people. You think about the fact that there are now something like 6 billion smartphones on the planet. So 20 years ago, information poverty was a huge thing. And now information poverty is effectively a thing of the past. Almost anybody on the planet can have effectively all of humanity's information at a given time. So information poverty has gone like this. Food poverty is going down. And yet water poverty is going up dramatically. So could we use technology to solve that problem? And while we've developed that technology, the a huge part of, as you know, Hari, scaling anything that's new is the is the paradigm shift the education around a new way of thinking about a, a around about a, a, an age old resource like water, and so that education process has taken you know some time to get right, and I think we have it now. Uh, but for sure, early on, the way we spoke about source hydro panels, the way we spoke about the the technology, made the assumption that people would just get it, would get mm-hmm. that there is. Um, this massive need around water and that there's something fundamentally different about the water that you put in your body from the water, all the rest of the water, right? The water that you put in your body, which is maybe only a liter or two or three a day, depending on, you know, your, your consumption habits, um, is far more important than the water that you bathe with the water that you flush your toilet with the water that, you know, all the other things that you do with water. And yet our, infrastructure treats it all the same mm. right we need to have potable water for you know in the u.s it's insane right we flush potable water down the toilet by the by the gallon <laughs> and think about the waste associated with that and the assumption of consumption there the rest of the world doesn't have that yeah. much many parts of the world don't have that luxury how do we think about that first liter or so of water that we put into our bodies in a way that elevates people through the use of this technology. Mm. From a, I, I want to ask you a bit more about what could change the game for you. Uh, but but briefly, since I asked you about the challenges, are you at a point where your business is now making money? Uh, we don't speak publicly about all of our financial details, but... Uh, Suffice to say, we're growing dramatically, and uh, the business is doing very well. Mm. So, yeah. So, so what might change things uh, dramatically for you? Whether it's tech or um, something that you already know that you're working on. Um, if, for example, it went from two thousand dollars to three hundred, four hundred dollars, then suddenly you have fifty million households in India alone who might be able to afford it. Um, so, so any thoughts on that? Yeah. And I think ultimately, Hari, that's where this goes. Mm. Um, ultimately, this, uh, there's nothing that stops this from very, being very, very low cost. The, you won't get there by just claiming that it's going to cost, you know, whatever, $400. Uh, you get there by scaling and scaling while in parallel demonstrating what the possibilities are. 
Mm. Right. So we have to have both scale and demonstration. And so when we think about India, for example, we're now installed in probably about, my guess is about 50 different sites in India, Mm -hmm. maybe 60. Um, And those are just the early demonstrations, right, of what's possible in India while the product is being scaled around the world and coming down in cost. Right. So those two things are happening in parallel. And I think what you'll see over the coming, not even five years over the next couple of years is you'll start to see a lot more of source in India. Mm. So maybe you can um, delve into that a little bit. Uh, what are some of the specifics of getting to the kind of scale that you're talking about? And and I would also love for you to sort of think a lot on this front from your entrepreneurial experience. I mean, uh, for a lot of folks who are listening, uh, definitely there is increased interest in India in you know, deep engineering and hardware-based products, although that's very, very nascent, but certainly the interest is increasing. So mm-hmm. I'd like to know, you know, what are some of the specifics that you've already thought about? Yeah, I mean, I, it's, it's pretty simple from the point of view of cost, which is, you know, if you think about, let's just take one injection molding tool, right? That one injection molding tool might be $200,000 or $300,000. If you're putting thousands of units through that, right, the amortized cost of that part is very different than if you're putting hundreds of thousands of units through that, right? So it's it's actually quite sort of pedestrian in terms of how you think about the math. Um, there's nothing. There's no magical. There's no magic. Uh, no magic in that at all. Um, so it is about largely just about scale, about localization to get labor costs down. So scale localization and continual design for manufacturability. So continuing to make, so instead of having two parts that are injection molded separately, turning that into one and consolidating, right? And that comes from just the learnings in the field around what works and what's robust, right? So those three pillars, right? Scale, localization, and design for manufacturability are really what will drive ultimately to the kinds of cost structures you're talking about. And ultimately, you know, being able to serve all of the India market. Now, speaking to the entrepreneurs that are listening, right, there's a huge amount that can be done by bootstrapping, by, um, you know, um, doing sort of garage level innovation, right, lab level innovation. These things don't have to require millions of dollars of investment to get to a minimum viability product. and. When you're talking about hardware, it's hard. It's hard tech, right? You move from soft tech software where copy paste is scaling, right? To uh, physical hardware where uh, scaling is not just copy paste, right? It requires additional uh, investment and, and capex. That uh, that part requires quite a bit more money than software. But to get to minimum viability product, you certainly don't need a lot of money. And with minimum viability product, if it solves a a core problem, uh, there should be investors around that would want to participate. More recently, have you had a chance to visit India? And I'm also asking in the context of what you think in terms of uh, any observations on the Indian startup ecosystem, again, especially from the point of view of uh, Entrepreneurs who might be, who might want to build hard, uh, you know, engineering-based uh, physical touch and feel products. Well, uh, so I've been in India a number of times. Uh, I'm looking forward to my next uh, trip out. Um, the vibrancy of India is undeniable, right? The sort of eagerness to solve problems, and yet the scale of challenges in India are, they're matched, right? The vibrancy and the scale of the challenges, uh, they, they are matched to one another. And so I guess my, my enthusiasm for the Indian market and for the Indian entrepreneurial environment is around that vibrancy and around the scale of the problems. Because if, if those Indian innovators, if those Indian entrepreneurs seek to solve Indian problems, right, in the Indian market, 
there's an opportunity, I'm confident that there's an opportunity to build great companies starting in India that solve Indian problems. Um, and uh, it's not like you need to globalize in order to have a massive market if you happen to be in India. And of course, as we know, India is really like 20 separate countries, <laughs> right? So yeah. it's a quite, quite a dynamic place. Um, and, <clears throat> you know, there's, um, there's any number of different, uh, you know, sources of, of capital in India from family offices to, uh, you know, sort of U.S.-based investors that have started to move into, into India to, to capture the opportunity. I mean, one of the things that people often say um, is that if you solve a problem in India, build a product that really works very well under Indian conditions, um, then it can be a product that, uh, you know, of course, depending on the, um, you know, need for such a, depending on the need for such a product, it could be a potentially a product that could go into many other markets overseas. And I mean, is that something that you would agree with? Um, uh, I mean, generally, yeah, India is a tough place, right? And so if it, if you can make something robust enough to function in India, to solve problems in India, um, it, it doesn't get harder in most places, right? Um, that vibrancy, that, that dynamic in India of the infrastructure challenges, the population challenges, the poverty challenges <clears throat> combined with the phenomenal education system and the, and the sort of entrepreneurial spirit, spirit um, means that there are a huge number of opportunities. And there's also the, to solve problems in India uh, means that you're solving hard problems and uh, you know, they're not, like I said, they're not, they don't get worse when you leave India. Mm. So one of my favorite questions, I'm always asking people, especially when I get somebody who's already spent a lot of time and has a fair amount of experience, what do you think is missing in, in, in the ecosystem? And, and I know in general, I know that, uh, for example, uh, funding for today, what is called the so-called deep tech ventures in India is still nascent. Um, some of those things, and maybe on the talent front, uh, there might be pockets of experience that's that's missing. I'm just I'm just thinking from your point of view, and you said it's possible to set up manufacturing in India. Beyond that, I'm thinking, you know, tech companies have software development teams that are that they're continually setting up and expanding in India. Sort of, at, I don't know, maybe even at the philosophical level, uh, when it comes to succeeding as uh, an engineering science based entrepreneur. Anything that comes to your mind that uh, you you think needs work in India or is missing? Well, maybe I'll start with, I mean, the the hardest thing to come by anywhere in the world is great intellectual talent, right? Mm. Uh, and India is flush with great intellectual talent. So I guess I would say that um, the thing that's missing, if there's anything missing, I'm not sure that there is anything missing, um, is sort of that you need you need the core the, the key entrepreneur you need the person who's going to start the idea who's going to drive a concept across the finish line that's going to stay with it and um what you need you know george bernard shaw talked about the idea that you know the reasonable person sees the world as it is and accepts it the unreasonable person sees it as the world uh, the world and tries to change it. Therefore, uh, all change is driven by unreasonable people, right? And so I don't know that there's enough unreasonable people in India trying to change the world, um, as opposed to rule followers uh, who have, have made it to you know, great heights within IIT or you know, some of the other great institutions. Um, and so who are the folks who have made it through the gauntlet uh, uh, to some of these, some of India's best, uh, academic institutions and so on, who also are willing to be unreasonable, who are also willing to break the system. So that, that's something that we have a lot of in the U S maybe that's the one thing that makes us unique. There's many, many things that, you know, are the U S is not at, great at, but that's one thing that we seem to have a lot of. Mm -hmm. Um, and so it feels like what, what India needs more of is more of that kind of let's break it. Let's, let's try to change the world in a way that's unexpected. That's, 
um, differentiated. And you don't need a lot of those folks. You just need folks that have the, the formal training to be able to see solutions to big problems while also having the unreasonableness to try to break what exists, right, in order to be disruptive. And so I, I guess that would be my my only thought for you, Hari, um, because India has so much going for it. Uh, I don't know that there's really anything missing. In your own case, have you ever consciously thought about what propelled you to become an entrepreneur? Of course, you wear many hats. Uh, you teach and possibly you've also invested in other startups and so on. Um, what, what sort of drives you to be an entrepreneur? I mean, all the glamour about large funding and all is fine, but I would imagine a lot of being a serious entrepreneur is also a very hard life. So, yeah, think a lot about that. Sure. That's a great question, Hari. Um, it is a very hard life. It's, you know, you don't, you don't sign up to build a company trying to solve a global problem uh, because it's easy. I could answer this a number of ways, but, you know, as an academic, right, we, you know, the, the age old kind of metaphor of the ivory tower, right? You have, you're able, you're in a position to live a very comfortable life, intellectualizing about everything, mm. um, working on any problem you want and yet never getting your hands dirty. And so one of the things that struck me early in my academic career was could we could we build on the platform of academia and focus on translational research research mm -hmm. that is focused on solving big problems and then actually actually translate it actually take it from the lab to the field um you know you think about academia is about really two things knowledge creation and knowledge transfer right knowledge creation in the form of research and so on knowledge transfer typically in the form of publication and and teaching but it can also be about knowledge creation, meaning go solve a big problem and then knowledge transfer as in transferred out into the world and go build solutions that solve real problems in the real world. And so it's a, it's a, the philosophy is really around how do we make academia more present in the world? And instead of doing some research, publishing it, and it ends up on the shelf, and hopefully somebody else picks it up later and turns it into something in the world, just take that directly from the bench, publish it, possibly pub publish it in the form of patents, and then take it directly to the world and don't wait for somebody else to pick it up. In terms of you know key lessons from building source uh, and even your earlier startups, and if, if we stick to source, um, looking back, Anything that you would do differently today? <laughs> I think every, every decision I, I, I guess I could, uh, I could criticize and, and sort of reimagine. Um, one of the things that um, I hold very dear in our culture is the idea that we have to remain inertia-free on path. Recognizing that if we can look at data, it means it's historical. It's not the future. It's all a lagging term. So we have to constantly be taking data from a, from a product perspective, from a customer perspective, from a technology perspective, from an investor perspective, et cetera, and making decisions in real time and picking our way to the right answer. So, you know, when we tell the story later and looking back, it'll be a straight line from lower left to upper right, right? But the reality is that it's very circu circuitous, right? It's we're making tracks like a fox. And so... Of course, there are many, 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 many decisions, many things that we've done where I would have made a different choice that would have been a slightly less circuitous path, a more straight line path. But the reality is that there's no way to build anything. There's no way to build anything where it's a straight line. It's just not possible. And in fact, the more dedicated you are to it being a straight line, the more fixated you are on path, the more likely you are to fail. So I would argue that we've failed many, many, many different ways in tiny ways, and in that way, failing our way to success, right? It is that little stair-stepping on our, on, our, on our way, that, that you know, drunk man's walk, if, if those of you that are statisticians in the, uh, 
in the audience, um, that drunk man's walk that ultimately results in finding the optimization for, for building anything that solves a real problem. Any uh, thoughts on top priorities for 2023 and also maybe after that, if there's anything in particular that you want to uh, talk about, highlight that, I mean, within the small context of this conversation that I didn't ask you about? Uh, yeah, I mean, Source is on a path to um, putting to bed humanity's greatest problem, right? We have two and a half billion people on this planet that don't have safe water at their home. That's the official number. I would argue that it's actually much bigger than that number. And today, over 200 million hours will be spent by women and girls fetching water today on this day in 2023, right? And so the question becomes, how does that number turn into zero? How does, how does that number of people that don't have safe water at their home turn into zero? It's unacceptable that it's as big as the number as it is. But even if it was one person, if you knew that person, you would do something to help them. Right? It's just the fact that it's a statistic out there in the ethos that the ether that we kind of can wave our hands about really big numbers and say, oh, that's awful, but not really go solve the problem. How do we solve drinking water at an individual human level at scale? That's the answer. That's the question that Source is answering. And we're going to do that. And so for 2023, it's just a, about dramatically scaling what we've already been achieving dramatically lowering the cost, dramatically improving performance, which we've been doing year over year over year. So that there will be a future, not decades out, not double digit years out, single digit years out, where we have an entirely different paradigm about how to solve water at scale. That's the sources. Very nice. Uh, Cody, wonderful update for me, sir, on your work. Very nice talking to you. Uh, definitely hope to keep the conversation going. Thank you so much again for making time for this. Thank you, Hari. This has been wonderful. That's it for this week's Startup Fridays. I'll be back next week with another conversation. Have a great Friday and a wonderful weekend ahead. <laughs>